Hello, James. Hello, Jackson. Ah, oh, man, today is an exciting day for a lot of reasons. I'm going to be playing live poker again for the first time in a long time. Uh, James, you're in Las Vegas playing live poker. And we're, we have a guest on the show. We haven't actually had, I don't think, a guest in a while. And we have an excellent guest at that. Uh, we have Andrew Brokus from the Thinking Poker Podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. It's, uh, well, it's nice to talk to you again, Jackson, and uh, nice to meet you, James. Yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the Thinking Poker podcast, so um, it's great to have you on the show. I appreciate that very much. So, you know, maybe people are expecting us to talk through, you know, a main event hand or something, you know, something from the days of old in poker. But no, we're, we're a very future-oriented show here. And so we figured that we should stay on the cutting edge. And, you know, in June 2020, the cutting edge is uh, masked games between glass and casinos. So, James, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the poker experience has been like and the casino experience in general has been like in Las Vegas? Hmm, you put me on the spot there. You had to know yeah, that. <laughs> it feels, yeah, I guess I should have known. It feels a little bit different. I have to say the five-handedness is, yeah, very enjoyable. It's going to be hard to go back to nine-handed after playing five-handed. And, yeah, you can also, like, there's fewer opponents that you have to concentrate on to exploit. You only have to figure out what four kind of people's strategies are instead of eight other people's strategies. But, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's been fun. Physically, what's what's the setup? Are you playing? I mean, I've, I've seen a few different pictures of of what poker tables have looked like various places. Are you playing with the like glass dividers between people? No, um, but there are a lot of masks, and um, they they're, they're not mandatory. They're not mandatory. They're sanitizing um, seats and like the rails every time there's a new person there. Um, so at least there's somewhat of a feeling of safety. I mean, how full is it? The Venetian was quite full. There was, I mean, there was a list for tables, but I think, yeah, they also have fewer tables than they ordinarily would. You have some more leg space, which is kind of nice. You don't get people like straddling and kind of invading your, your area. So that's another nice thing about these new games. Um, there have not been, yeah, there's no glass in the two rooms that I visited. Did they increase the rake or are you paying the, the normal? I believe it's the normal rake. That doesn't um, seem sustainable to me. You know, for them to only have half, half as many seats filled to possibly be using like more staff than usual if they've got like a person doing sanitizing stuff that wouldn't like... It, it, it seems like at some point, I mean, if, if this were to like carry on indefinitely, um, I don't know how sustainable. Like, I feel like they would have to raise the rake if they're uh, only collecting half as much. Yeah. yeah. I think that's going to be true for a lot of businesses. I mean, I'm, I haven't gotten my haircut, but I've seen sort of the setup or heard about certain setups in like barbershops and salons. And, you know, I think it's really hard for businesses to like operate sort of under capacity with additional restraints, right. uh, changing prices. And so you, you'd have to expect that 
eventually, if this goes on too long, you know, businesses will either close or raise their prices or yeah. I'm not sure exactly what will happen, but yeah. I, think Although I would say like with a haircut, I mean, the amount that I pay for a haircut is less than like the amount that I would pay for a haircut if I had to, you know? Um, whereas with poker, it's like, I think it's pretty sensitive, at least for people to be like making a living from the game. Uh, you know, if, if you increase the rake by like 50% or something, I mean, that's, that's going to make it unfeasible for like a pretty big chunk of people. Well, I, I mean, more rake is better. So there's, there's right. that. I, I hadn't considered that more rake is better. Would you say that the clientele is, there's sort of a different distribution between maybe pros, tourists, like sort of light recreational players, very sort of dj recreational players. I mean, how does that feel? From the games I played in, I think there are, fewer tourists it seems like it's mostly locals that are at the games um but there there are still some you know older people who are decided that they they're i don't know they're willing to go out there they're feeling healthy maybe they've already gotten the virus and they're uh, they're safe now what about i'm just curious the rest of the casino uh and poker room's busy are there are a lot of people playing slots, blackjack. I think I think they said it's about like 25, 30% of the usual amount of tourists they would have this time of year. All right. Have people, you know, one thing I've been wondering that sort of, I guess, is pertinent for my game tonight is, you know, is there certain sort of like pent up, you know, aggression or looseness that people just need to, <laughs> need to play? you know, 50% more hands than they normally do because they haven't played any live poker. Yeah, maybe. I mean, people are playing, like, quite loose even for a five-handed game where you should be opening it up a lot more than, um, you know, your nine-handed games. Yeah, there's people are trying to see a lot of flops still. Have you made any adjustments because of that? I guess, um, I don't know. I've been trying to see a lot of flops myself as well. But um, I guess if people are playing loser, you could say could tighten up a little bit more and just let the money come to you that way. But that doesn't seem as fun as also widening your range. I think that's that's probably right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've, we're starting to get the scene set. You know, so we're going to talk about a hand. This took place at the Phoenician. Uh, no, this was at the Golden Nugget. Ah. All right. Yeah. You wanted to play some uncapped one-two? Yeah. <laughs> well, there were, there was a much shorter list there, so it was easier to get into a game. Gotcha. All right. Uh, well, why don't you set the stage for us? All right. So we're playing five-handed at the Golden Nugget. Um, our main villain is a, I'd say he's like probably 60s individual. Seems like he's kind of there to, to have a good time and splash around a little bit. He has made some plays that I was a bit dubious about. Like, I don't remember the hand histories exactly, but betting in a scenario where he was probably only going to be called by better, like with a medium strength hand, which was 
a little fishy and yeah i got also got a feeling that he was a little bit of a caller i didn't see him make any like like huge calls for like you know like 50 big blinds plus but a leaned caller with these more like medium-sized bets from what i saw so he opened to 10. Um, oh, he was also doing a bit of limping and opening pre-flop. I think the opens were a bit stronger. I didn't see him at like trap any hands when he was limping, but I think he, yeah, I don't think it's like, I don't know. I think he could still be somewhat wide there for the open. So he's, he's high drag, which is under the gun in these five-handed games. He opens for 10. And it folds to us. We're in the big blind with king five suited. So just to clarify some terminology for any newer listeners and for Andrew, James and I like to sort of classify certain types of opponents into are they a caller or a folder? Uh, just sort of adding some simplicity to the game when you get into these spots where maybe bluffs feel marginal. I think it's good to sort of remind yourself, you know, did you see this player prior to having to make this decision as generally a caller or generally a folder? If you're indifferent at equilibrium, then your strategy should be uh, very, your, your mixed strategy should be very sensitive uh, or hands that would be mixed at equilibrium should be very sensitive to that sort of uh, uh, hunch. Doesn't even need to be a read. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, sometimes things, you might feel like it's a sort of zero EV decision a 50 50 per se uh although probably the odds are not exactly 50 50 but yeah i think it's easy to get sort of clouded in the hand and so having that kind of classification it kind of ties you back to before there was sort of like emotion and stakes tied up into the decision that you're currently making so yeah i think it's it's good to know that this guy is probably a caller as are many players uh, i would say it's more common than being a folder I think as you as you uh, hinted with one of your earlier questions, I would expect, especially now when people have not played live poker, and for some of them have not played poker for several months, uh, I would expect that callers are at a uh, you know a, a relative peak compared to uh, folders. <laughs> yeah, if you came to fold, you probably are. Being generally risk averse is probably not correlated with being inside of casinos uh, yeah. right now. If, if you're just looking for a cheap place to drink coffee, you might uh, go look <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> All right. So, James, you're under the gun uh, at a five-handed table with king five suited. What are stack sizes sort of generally? No, sorry. So our opponent raised 10 under the gun, and we're in the big line with king five suited. Okay. So, yeah, our opponent had, I think, 250 dollars and obviously we're covering everyone at the table for playing at the golden nugget all right well i'll defer to our guest here uh andrew you flew to seattle to play some poker you haven't played live poker in months someone you know sort of an older gentleman opens to ten dollars uh on the gun you're in the big blind with king five is suited what should you do this is a one-two game right yeah yeah i mean it's kind of an unsexy answer but i'm just folding but Jane, or Andrew, we flew all the way from Seattle. <laughs> you know what will happen if you fold? They're just going to give you two new cards, and you can maybe you'll play this. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fair. I mean, that's a fair decision. What if what if we think that we might have kind of a significant edge against this opponent? I mean, I'm assuming you would. I, I still think it's probably a fold. Um, yeah. I mean, you're so. You, I mean, you have a skill edge. You probably don't have a card edge, meaning like your hand is probably not a favorite relative to his range. Um, and you're going to be at a possessional disadvantage. So you're going to need a pretty big skill edge to overcome that. I don't think it's impossible. I mean, I've played with people where I would want to call here, but I think it's pretty likely a fold. I mean, it, you're, you're paying uh, a high price, yeah. and you're going to be right when you know, when you, when you call and yeah. say flop. You know, a, a uh, at what size? Come at what out. size would you lean more towards call? I think I would call it six. Um, that's not to say that's the threshold, but that's like, you know, I, I don't think I would really consider folding at six. So it's somewhere between, um, <laughs> seven, eight or nine is, is my fold point. Yeah. I think, right. I think also given that this player is a caller, I think our best, you know, our best bet when we're sort of 250 big lines deep facing an open to 10, no, sorry, not 250 big lines deep, 125 big lines deep facing an open to five big lines. Uh, is if we think that we're going to be able to get sort of like more than our fair share of folds. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, what I'll say is that someone can be a caller and just be a very transparent see better in the sense that like if they miss, they check back. And then I think that would be sort of like to me what would be necessary for this to be a, a good call at this stack depth versus someone who uh, is not going to overfold uh, without doing something extremely transparent. And so that transparent thing that would be visible and would come at some sort of reasonably high frequency would be just sort of a give up on the flop uh, and sort of failing to see that. Yeah, I think that's right. And you can imagine a lot of variations on that behavior where maybe his C-bet size is different when he has it versus when he doesn't, or there's something about his behavior where you think you're going to be able to know with, like, it doesn't even have to be 100%, but you're like, oh, there's a 70% chance that I'm going to know whether or not he has it based on his C-bet. Like, that might be enough to, to turn it into a call. I mean, I, I think it's it's somewhat close to where, you know, it, it's like if you have uh, but I think you need more than just a hunch. Like, I think you need a pretty strong sense of, like, not just generically, uh, this guy's not that good and I'm better than he is, but like a pretty clear sense of like exactly how you're going to be making money from him calling with this hand other than just like hoping to flop a pair or a flush draw. Like, I think you, you need some way of making money on boards where you don't flop a pair or a flush draw. Yeah, I think that's all very fair. I think another thing that's, a bit worse about this particular hand is that we're going to be dominated by a lot of kings and so we could get into a little bit of trouble there like maybe we can get away cheaper than we really should be able to but yeah when he's when he comes in for the raise i think he's more like king x dense but i didn't come all the way to vegas <laughs> to fold king five suited so yeah uh I put uh, eight more dollars into that pot, and um, we saw a flop of queen nine five, rainbow with the queen of spades. So we have the backdoor flush draw and bottom pair. Backdoor straight draw. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, I'm not not feeling so good about that backdoor straight draw, but. Um, that's true. 
So I don't think there's really a case for leading. We check and our opponent bets 15 into what is now, I think, $18, maybe 19 something like that. And we're faced with a decision again. So this is the kind of spot that I think I wouldn't be calling pre-flop unless I had a pretty clear sense of what I wanted to do in this in this kind of instance. Um, I expect I, I think there's a fair chance this could even just be a pure fold at equilibrium. You know, a, a big C bet on a board like this one where you just have bottom pair like the, the queen and the nine. Um, I think are going to connect pretty well with his opening range to the point where like, even when your five is good, you often, you know, your equity is not that great. And you're not really way ahead. And then like check raising is not going to be that effective for you either. So I think it's uh, like, I, I guess I, I would want to know, is, is it, is it like rare that he makes such a big C bet? Is he consistently C betting? If we're not going to have that kind of information and like that's, I guess the, I, I would only call pre-flop if I had that sort of information where I would like, I'm going to know what it means that he's betting 15 and 18 here. I'm not just going to be like, Oh, well, that's, you know, now I'm going to have to figure this out on the floor. Yeah. I think, I think it makes him a lot more polar. I mean, it should theoretically, but, yeah, I saw kind of the smaller bets with more of the medium kind of strength hands. But looking back, I kind of agree here that it's going to be pretty tough to play this out of position with like, like there's going to be so many like board connecting cards that in position is going to have a big advantage on. Like, and like even if you get a king, nine. like. You could yeah. check and call the flop, peel off a king turn, and still not feel that good about it if he bets yeah. two more straights. Like you're behind yeah. the queen, you're behind Jack Ten. I mean, yeah, it's a big reverse implied odds spot. Yeah, I think the best, a lot of the best bluff catchers, either you know sort of maximally unblock bluffs, or have sort of like very clear, you know, extremely good backup plans. And yeah, I think your king. I think the king is still like a good card for you, but it's not a great card uh, because you become very likely to lose all of the effective stack to a lot of different hands. And so I think you would, it would, it would be at most, and I think it is probably slightly positive, but it would be at most slightly positive. Um, yeah. I, I tend not to use the reverse implied odds um, language. I mean, I know it's, it is sort of like what people tend to use in this kind of circumstance, but I think it implies that somehow the card is like negative EV for you, that you're actually losing money when the king comes. I don't think that's true. I think it's just that as far as like, for it being just about a best case scenario turn card, I mean, obviously a five is best, but you know, the, the second best card for you after a five is a king. And I don't think that your implied odds are all that good, even if you do happen to spike one of your best possible turns. Right. I mean, your your implied odds might be pretty decent for spiking a five, but there's only two of those. And then after that, there's really like no especially good turn cards for you. Like a, a king is is okay, but not as good as we'd like it to be for it being one of our best case scenarios. And then anything other than those two cards, even catching the flush draws, um, it's still not really doing that much for us. Yeah, I, I think that's all very fair. Maybe we need kind of a new term for it. like, Or could we call it like lower implied odds or... We'll have to try and coin something, but yeah, I kind of like, I kind of like there, there should be maybe a different name for when you're just, you're not going to be making as much money like on your gin cards because your opponent is going to have you dominated a decent percentage. Um, like, so even though you are making money overall, 
there. So. Dirty outs is the, is the yeah. term that comes to mind. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, I think it's that, you know, implied odds and reverse implied odds are not, they're not like a binary. It's one or the other. You have both versus different, you know, sets of hands. Uh, and so it's just, you know, both of those things impact the expected value of the current decision. I think it's a totally different game on queen eight five. Uh, I think that king is, it's much more valuable and you'll unblock a lot more like sort of highly relevant bluffs to your hand. And I think you can proceed with a lot of clarity. It's still not like slam dunk. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we block a lot of the gut shots here. And yeah, the you block is, some. Like if he has 16 combinations of king jack, you're blocking four of them. Like he still has quite a few. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I mean, what was we didn't probably another to, yeah, little bit of a there. flying to Vegas mistake <laughs> and uh, decided to call. Yeah. I, yeah, I kind of agree if I had thought about this a bit more carefully. Fold is better here. I think it's not as close as the flop decision. And the turn is the eight of spades. I don't really think there's a case for leading here. I mean, the obvious draw does complete, but we're out of position. And I think, yeah, I think our opponent is honestly a bit more jack 10 dense. And I guess our opponent can have six, seven here where we really can't. Do you see any case for leading either? I guess, uh, Andrew, do you see any case for leading on the turn here? I definitely see a case for having a leading range. Um, I think you you should on, on cards like even if they don't necessarily like shift the nuts advantage. Um, it, I mean, like he can also have nutty hands. Like the fact that you are going to have, like you probably have sixteen combinations of jack ten and maybe some of seven six as well. Um, I mean, you. I think you will have a leading range here in theory. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily adding a lot of EV to your strategy by developing that leading range, um, but I do doubt that king five would be part of it. I don't think there's a lot of incentive to lead with this exact hand. Yeah, we we did turn our flush draw. I think that makes checking better. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's more of an argument for checking. Like you're, you're, you care less about a free card. Um, I don't think your hand has particularly good equity against his calling range. I don't think you're going to feel very good facing a raise after you lead. Um, you don't benefit all that much from the hands that he folds when you lead. Um, I think there's just not really a lot. Uh, I, just, I don't think betting accomplishes very much with this hand. Yeah. So we, we did end up checking, and he bet 20 into... 48 and my thought here was that this sizing was kind of capped so i was not expecting him to have a nutted hand here and i was kind of expecting that yeah he might have like a weak queen here which does have you know, it will have the straight draw if like queen jack or queen 10, something like that. And um, despite what I said about his initial tendencies, I decided to raise to 70 just because I thought I could get a lot of folds here and the obvious draw completed. 
and I wanted to be able to retain the betting lead on spades. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I would do the same thing against the bet of that size. Um, I, I think, yeah, I, I agree with your interpretation of it. I think even callers, and, and this is like, I, I don't intend this as, as a criticism of that taxonomy of like callers and folders. I, I like that. But um, I do think that it, ideally you you also kind of have in, in the back of your head or like another layer I would like to add to that is, you know, how does that change in, in small versus large pots? Um, one characteristic of player that I tend to think of are uh, what I call splashy players. Who th- these are players who they like to kind of splash around in, in smallish pot. Like they like to see a lot of flops. Sometimes they'll chase a lot of turns. Like when the pots really get big, I think you see more of this at, at two five than at one two because the money feels a little more real to people. But um, when the pots really start to get big, then if anything, these players can end up being overly tight or against like certain betting lines, like, you know, getting check raised on the turn is the sort of thing that you know, a lot of these players are not accustomed to, to seeing as a bluff. Um, it's like often a line that gets like disproportionate respect, even from people whose, you know, their, their initial inclination might be to, um, to, to call. But I think there are certain betting lines that can still trigger a, a folding instinct. Um, so I'm, I'm on board with, uh, with raising here. And yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt that you have a, uh, a nutty draw. What do you think, Jack? I think the raise can make sense, but I want to sort of drill down into, I think, some of the things that we should be considering. So I think it's important to have a really clearly defined river strategy, particularly when your hand doesn't improve. Because the the mistake, you know, you're you're unlikely to sort of get an unshare, sorry, like more than your fair share or, you know, cause your opponent to overfold two streets in a row. That that doesn't happen that much. And you have equity that kind of like provides a buffer. But the more I think you're in tune with, I can get these hands I want to fold to fold on the turn. Or I can get a lot of folds on the river because maybe a lot of the sort of hands that my opponent has on the turn have some sort of draws to the nuts or sort of nut-like hands. And it's going to be hard to get those to fold on the turn, but I can get them to fold on the river. I think you want to have, you know, obviously, of course, you want to have some sense of that, but I think that's important. Because if you're, what I see happen is people will maybe make a really great turn raise where they narrow their opponent's range significantly and they sort of create a larger pot for when their hand actually improves and now they're up against a very strong range that is somewhat likely to pay off. And then the river breaks out and they say like, ah, maybe he didn't fold jacks or maybe I can get ace-queen to fold now. And they follow through on the river in a spot where it wasn't really consistent with their original plan or how they were thinking about this opponent. So let me ask you, what what are the hands you think are most likely to fold to this turn race? I think, yeah, I think it's not clear what he's doing with his queens in this situation. I think, I think like nine X will fold to this turn raise. I think queen jack, queen 10, 
could find a call here just because of their kind of backup equity. And then, yeah, I could, you know, it's possible he does get sticky with some of these like king, queen, ace, queen type hands. I also like, I don't know, I would be looking for his body language a bit as he's making this call as well. And, um, but yeah, I, I think it's unclear. I think he's folding these queens some of the time, um, which will make it a bit more difficult for us to play these rivers. My hope was that kind of the obvious draw gets there. And so the check raise will just kind of get him to take a second look at the board, see that Jack 10 got there and then, yeah, make folds with his queens like a decent amount of the time. Yeah, I think I, I was going to say the Go same ahead. thing about uh, body language. That I think you know, I, I don't necessarily have a sense in a vacuum of. You know, I, I think like there are some people who will be disciplined, and this maybe doesn't sound like one of those players who will be disciplined to just like fold a one pair hand when they get check raised here, where they're sort of like, okay, well, if he's raising, you know, he can beat one pair, and I should just get out of the way. I think those, so like there's a category of player that does that. And then there's a category of player that will sort of like, he just needs to see more money go into the pot before he's going to fold an overpair or a fold top pair, for instance. And he's not really thinking in terms of like hand reading or thinking more than one street ahead. You know, so I think there's people who sort of like, they, they feel the leverage of the turn check raise to the point where they just assume the river shove is coming. You know, they're like, oh, he's raising the turn. He's obviously going to shove the river. So like they essentially overfold the turn, right? They just like, they, they don't call unless they're either drawing to something on the river or they plan on calling the river, but like they're not going to call full with you know, pocket aces or something. And I think there's another set of players who do the opposite, you know, who um, who will sort of, sort of like call. And I think those tend to be slightly more like ego driven players. And I think something you can tell that with just the way that they call where, you know, they, they call in a kind of defiant way where they're trying to sort of like scare you out of um, betting again on, on the yeah. next street. Maybe they, maybe they throw their chips in a bit aggressively. Yeah, so I, I like, and I think that you know, obviously, the weaker the player is, the more likely you are to pick up on that on that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I was going to make the same comment about I would you know really want to pay attention. So I, I mean, I think also there's a fair chance the turn raise is just profitable in a vacuum. That if you even if you were to just give up 100 percent of the time when you don't improve on the river, that still might just be a profitable raise. But um, I do think you can increase the profitability of it by by looking for opportunities to shove the, the river. And I mean, it certainly helps to have a sense of what might be better or worse river cards. But I think in this case, we're not really dependent on a scary river card. You know, we're essentially representing something that's already there on the turn. There's not a lot of rivers that are going to make the board scarier than they are. And in fact, I think some of those rivers, as uh, James hinted earlier, I think some of the rivers that might sort of make the board scarier also improve the you know queen jack or queen 10 portion of his range so I yeah might, I, I don't think we should follow through on sorry i don't think we should follow through on a jack of a jack or a 10 right uh, yeah. yeah i think if anything blank rivers might be what we're what we're looking for but I, I mean i think this is a big not not you specifically james but i think this is like a mistake that a lot of people make is um you know they, they don't know when to give up on, on a bluff and uh it's very commonly the case that a very good bluffing spot on one street is a very bad bluffing spot on, on the next street. I mean, almost by definition, if you believe your opponent is overfolding to a turn check raise, that means his range for calling a check raise is very strong. And, you know, there, there, it might just be the case that he's, you know, in fact, bluffing on the river would be very unprofitable. Um, so I do think, you know, what you were saying, Jack, about 
uh, have a plan and make sure you've thought about this ahead. Because if, if your bluffing process is just sort of like, well, I've represented a strong hand and I can't win if I check, you know, that that's not going to be sufficient to find profitable bluffs. Uh, you do want to be thinking about what, you know, what hands am I trying to get him off of? And at what point do I think he's going to fold this? Yeah, I, th I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I think paying attention to our opponent's body language on the turn should be a really big part of our plan. Uh, even if we, you know, well, our plan on the river is probably going to be relatively mysterious before we see that reaction. And we won't have a chance to think of every single river card. So we're going to make some adjustments on the river based on new information, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I think generally thinking like, am I creating, like, is this step one or is this like the sort of main flow? Is yeah. that that's, I think, an important sort of general thing to have a sense of here. And it has implications for sizing too. Where like, I mean, if, if it is the oh, main yeah. flow, then you probably want to go bigger. If you're planning on barreling most rivers, then you actually want to get called on the turn. Like the, the more weak ante calls the turn planning to fold the river, the more money you make if you know you're usually going to be firing that third barrel. So um, the more exploitative you want to get, like you might even want to size differently depending on what the plan is. But of course, you're you know, going down a potentially more uh, exploitable route when you do that. Yeah. Although I think we, you know, should We've decided take that route. to be exploitative yeah. against this player, sure. And the other thing to, to keep in mind is that like, I think, you know, it's nice to take the lead for when we improve, but we can always take the lead when we improve after we call. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's an important component of the, of the value of the check race. I mean, it, it helps that we have outs. I don't know that having the lead on those outs is necessarily that useful for us. I mean, it might no. actually be counter, counterproductive in that, like, we've already shown strength, so it might actually be that we win less money when we river a flush. Well, I think just having the poppy larger sort of the, what's the author who said like the two reasons to bet are oh, deny equity and have the poppy larger in case we have the best hand. To me, that sort of second reason is it's a component of the raise where I think when we make the flush, it's going to be hard for us to find a way of getting two bets in on the river, just because if we check, we should face a lot of checks. And if we bet, we shouldn't face a lot of raises. So putting in that raise on the on the turn sort of allows us to play for stacks at a higher frequency um, when our opponent is sort of at the top of range. And speaking of, you know, we're sort of assuming our opponent doesn't have queen jack or a set or anything like that. There is a little bit of danger in raising as well in that we can just get sort of shoved on <laughs> and have to fold. I think yeah, jack, jack, 10 would be, jack 10 is the straight here. It's right. to jack review 10, the sorry. board is... Queen nine five and then the turn eight. Yeah. Yeah. So I I mean I would say I, I don't think calling is the alternative to raising. I think folding is the alternative to raising. Um, uh, I disagree just with the flush draw. I think that uh, between equity we might have and our ability to improve and just lead and expect to get a value but paid a significant portion of the time, like we can definitely call profitably. Facing twenty to fifty. Yeah. Yeah, it's twenty into forty-eight. I guess. I think you're not going to make a flush out. Like you, you've got to be either winning pots on river cards that don't make a flush, or winning. I mean, you've got to be winning that value bet at a pretty high frequency to 
to be making money on the turn call. I mean, you, you definitely, from from like a pure pot odds perspective, you certainly don't have the, the price to call if, if we assume that the only outs are flushes. Um, so it, it really just depends like how much. No, but I, I think based on, based on sort of our read that this is a capped bet, it significantly improves the likelihood we're going to win on a five, especially, and also a king. And so between those, just being able to maybe check call or potentially lead a five, potentially lead a king, and certainly lead a flush. Uh, and you know, we're up against a caller who probably, like when they're able to just get right to showdown, is going to call like a lead of, let's say, 60 with most queen X. Or I, I feel comfortable making that bet bet. Uh, I, think, I think the call will make money. That's my sense. No, that that's fair. I mean, I, I think even so, it's it's the, the EV of the call. I don't think is significantly greater than zero, which is part of why I'm not that concerned about getting blown off of equity by getting shoved on. Like, I think if the, the more profitable calling is, then you know, the less the less appealing raising is is going to be. Um, but if if calling is like even if it is you know plus EV, if it's not like substantially plus EV, then that's going to make raising more appealing, even if it does mean that like occasionally he shoves over the check raise and then we lose our equity. Um, I don't think our equity is worth that much to us is I guess my my point. And I, nor do I think after using this sizing, it's all that likely that he jams over a check raise. Um, I think that's, I, I just, I don't think there are that many hands where he's going to size small here and then shove over a, a, a check raise. Well, <laughs> so you folded? We we're, uh, we decided we were going to pay it very close attention to what he did after we raised. And chose what seventy, he did, right? What he did, yeah, we raised to seventy. Just one last thing in the turn. To me, that's yeah. more of like a that's a sizing I would choose more so if I was expecting to barrel the river as a bluff. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I think I would probably make it closer to a hundred if I wanted to get a lot of folds on the turn. It's transparent, but I've found it to be very effective. So just a, yeah. just a thought. Yeah, and that might have worked out better because as we're watching very closely to what he does after our turn raise, he goes all in quickly. <laughs> so we're facing a bet of 130, 130 more into a pot of 188. And we have a pair and the second nut flush draw. I think we've we've established that we feel like this is a fold. Yeah, that's the way I'm leaning. Yeah, I mean, if he does have, like, if he has aces here, what what kind of odds are we getting? So we're getting like we need. Uh, so we went on any flush, and then also any five or any king. So it's going to be like, we have 14 outs, basically. 13, really, because the ace of the suit is not going to be enough for you. It's either in his hand or it makes him, um, or never mind. I guess it doesn't make him. Yeah, okay. It could, yeah, it could be in his hand. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, no, but, yeah but you, you don't lose on an ace, never mind. Yeah, uh, so it's like... I was thinking you lose if he hits the ace of the suit. Yeah, so we have like 26%, and we'd also have that against, you know, around 26%. And then we also have that against, like, if he has a lower two pair, um, we're doing a bit worse. Like we only have 18% if he has the jack 10, which 
could be here in a decent amount of combos, but it's the you know, queen I also of spades. Think, sorry, it's the yeah, queen the queen, of spades. The queen is a spade, okay. um, which makes this a little bit better. You know, he doesn't have ace queen well. of spades or um, yeah, queen queen jack of spades, something like that. And he could have, um, yeah, I think he could have like the nut flush draw here as well that he decides to go all in. I think going all in quickly kind of leans him away from bluffs here. What do you guys think? Uh, I, I'm generally inclined to agree with that. The, the one exception I could think of is if you tanked a while before you raised, you know, where he had time to plan what he wanted to do. I think you're right that a lot of people are not just, you know, going to decide on a dime if you raise and they're just like, oh, I guess I'm going all in. You know, like, I think they would have to have thought about that ahead of time. So it might matter a little bit, like how much time you gave him to, to think about that. But in general, I agree that uh, probably the, the very quick raise is not going to be, um, I think it's most likely to be excitement with a strong hand and like some hint of like fear with a strong hand as well, where he's like, uh, he like he doesn't even necessarily feel like if his hand feels vulnerable, he might not be inclined to Hollywood with it because he might just sort of be like, I don't want to take the chance of losing this. I just want to get it over with. Um, whereas yeah. if you have like an unbeatable, you know, if you have like quads or something where he wasn't worried about getting drawn out on, then you might see some like Hollywooding before he shoves. If it's something that feels vulnerable to him, like a, a set or two pair, you know, it might be the kind of thing where even though he thinks he has the best hand, he's still kind of happy to get the fold. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, I took I took about twenty seconds, so you know that is I guess that's enough time for him to think a little bit about what he wants to do, but it wasn't like a crazy tank or anything. What do you think, Jack? Is there any any case for calling here? I think the problem is that the sort of speed of the shove and the shove itself both suggest that like. I would say against the majority of the combos that take this line, you don't have like every out that you could have. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're doing much worse against like a set or two pair or even, you know, aces. Yeah. It could be aces, but it could also be Kings. Uh, that's not great for you. I don't yeah. think it's so likely that you're up against like queen Jack uh, or queen 10 or, or hands like that. And so, could it be some sort of like, you know, big combo tries, 10, ace, jack of spades? Maybe. So I think that that plays in your favor. But I think that's slightly less likely. Yeah. Yeah. I, would, I, I feel good about the fold. Yeah. That's, I mean, what if we had raised to 100? Do you, I mean, at some point, that might have been a better play because then we don't have to fold out all of this equity necessarily. You'll um, price yourself in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with that logic. Yeah. I think okay. um, I, I think you want to look at the fold as an opportunity, not as a cost. Like, being, you know, c committing $250 against a set or a straight or something is not a, a good thing. Um, unless you're getting a lot more fold equity off of that 100 so that you're getting compensated for it. Like, having yeah. to put your money in from behind is a, is a cost um, where you, you know, if you had the choice of, like, I could either... Put the money in or not like you'd rather not so it's just a question of like did you make a mistake committing yourself <laughs> with the raise or did you buy yourself enough extra fold equity that was worth committing yourself to to the raise but i don't think committing yourself to call the raises is, is intrinsically a good thing yeah because if you think about the set of hands against which you have to call the raise the 
combination of like bet larger and then call is clearly worse than like bet smaller uh, and then fold. Right. Yeah. That, that's a cleaner way of saying that. <laughs> yeah. And so, and just the other yeah. hands that are relevant to to that decision. And if anything, the the greater the presence of those hands, which we already thought were fairly rare, uh, which sort of justified our raise in the first place. Yeah. So I did land on fold, but I think, yeah, I think it's like it's like a little bit close on the on the call there. I think I like I folded a little bit more quickly than I would have liked. I think I should have thought about it a little bit more once you jammed all in. But yeah, later. I mean, that's the kind of thing you think about before you check raise. And yeah. unless something happens where, I mean, maybe maybe the quick timing was that thing, but I mean, unless he does something that causes you to like change your read on what he's going to shove, like if you think he's going to be shoving often enough that you should be calling with this hand, you probably shouldn't be check raising in the first place. Like you don't have the fold equity. Because I mean, you need him to be shoving hands like aces or uh, queen jack. And if he's not shoving those, if he's not even thinking about folding like aces or he's not going to call aces and fold the river or whatever, then I don't think this is a profitable raise in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, later he did claim that he had queen nine and I'm inclined to believe him. Um, yeah. It's I think. The, this, the sort of hand I would expect him yeah. to have like the, the yeah. two pair that's uh, even though he thinks he's good, he's afraid of getting drawn out on. He just wants to like get it in and get it over with. Yeah. And he doesn't, it's just like if you got me you got me you know like even though 16 combos of jack 10 get there he doesn't uh he doesn't want to retain my bluffs on the river on his part because he mostly should be like in very bad shape against your calling range and there's not a lot of hands. i mean this is the rare hand where he actually does have significant fold equity but like in general the hands that you're folding are hands that have pretty bad equity against him anyway so like it's really not a hand he should want to shove but i'm not surprised but yeah fold pretty fun yeah, <laughs> and on the and on the flop and on the flop yeah i mean and, and that is like it's not entirely a coincidence right i mean it's i, I know that is sort of like a uh, a snarky thing to to say but like the whole the, the analogy i've been using for this recently is like if you if you build your house on a bad foundation i mean the walls are going to collapse and a lot of times people you know the strategy question that they want to talk about is like my walls are collapsing what should i do and like, there's not really a good solution to it at that point. Like, once like you, you have a two wire purchase, range, purchase different building material. Yeah, <laughs> right. it's like you know, what, what, once your range is too wide on the flop, there's not really like a good answer to what am I supposed to do to this bet? Like, yeah, I mean, king five suited probably is going to be like kind of close to the top of your range. You're calling presumably like king four suited and king six suited are also in your range. So like, because your range is so wide, you you are going to have a hand that's in the top you know, third of it or whatever, where it seems like you should be defending to this bet, but it's also not going to be a profitable defend. And that's just because your pre-flop range is, is too wide. And then same thing on the turn. I mean, if, if your flop range is too wide, then like you are going to end up with a bunch of hands where even though you're facing a kind of small bet and it feels bad to fold a hand at that, at, at that like um, tranche of your range, you're not uh it's also not profitable <laughs> to, to do anything else with it, or at least like you, you just like haven't really given yourself the right uh, the right tools for the job. And you know, ideally, you want to be looking forward to, and that's why I was kind of asking preflop, like, what is the value of this hand on boards that are not, you know, where you don't make a pair or a flush draw? Um, that's really what you need to be prepared for. And 
it matters a little bit that like the hand is also not that good even when you do make a pair. Like even when you make a pair of fives, you still end up in a lot of spots where your hand isn't that good. Or sometimes even when you make a pair of kings, you end up in spots where your hand isn't that good. Because there are hands like pocket twos that you might call with here, even ex accepting that there's like a large number of flops that you're not going to do well on, just because the flops that are good for you are so good that they kind of like make up for all those ones that you have to fold. But I don't think king five suited really falls into that category. I think it's like there's a bunch of flops that are like decent for you. And the same thing happens on the flop when you're, when you're anticipating turn situations, like there's a fair number that are like pretty decent for you. Like we talked about if you, if you make two pair, like, yeah, it's a pretty good outcome, but not really good enough to make up for the fact that it's so rare, you know, that the, the large majority of flops or the large majority of turns are going to be pretty bad situations for you. And then the few that are good are not really good enough to make up. For yeah. I think, you know, I'm not always the biggest fan of trying to sort of put the lens of, you know, game theory on top of every decision that gets made. But I think one one useful thing about game theory is that it sort of untangles sort of the layers of exploitative assumptions that can become so common that they feel like they're just part of the game. And I think among those is the large race sizes that are used in one, two games. And it's something that I advocate for, you know, making large raises as the opener. And I think the reason is because you can get people to call out of position with weak hands. But I think that can become normalized in a sense where it's like, you're thinking about just like, what are big line calling ranges? And like 10 is a normal size. And therefore, like king five suited to the king, big lines, kind of a call. It's not that big of a raise, but it is a big raise. And I think that sort of normal big blind calling range that like we've come to know and love through looking at charts here or there, that's not necessarily designed for like a five big blind open. And I, I, so I think, you know, trying to look at sort of the, the things that game theory comes up with as, you know, or the tools that are sort of built on some sort of mathematical foundation that they arrive with and say this is what you should do here it can be good to sort of shake some of the assumptions that maybe we have from playing a game that's sort of been you know in large ways built around trying to sort of one-up each other so here i think that might have bit you a little bit in that you're not thinking of 10 as like a super large opening size when you're on the button sorry when you're in the big blind the, um, the the thing that I often hear because uh, you know I, I coach some people who play in you know some of these like uh, looser or deeper one two games where it is kind of common that you see these like big pre flop raises five five x eight x ten x um, you know I I, I have. You know, I, I work with people who play in, in these kinds of games, and the thing that they'll often say is like, "Oh, it doesn't mean anything." You know, it's just that's just the standard open size. Like, it doesn't mean anything that he's raising that, and that may well be true. Like, it might be that his five xing range here is the same as like what a three xing range in like a two five game. Like, he, he could he could fully be like just taking out a chart of like what hand should I open from the hijack, and then just like five xing with those hands, which would be a bad approach. And but you know the, the the reason to fold king five suited is not that we're making some assumption about the strength of his hand based on the fact that he's raising to ten dollars. It's just that you're getting a less good price to, to defend your big blind. It's it's nothing to do with any assumptions we're making about this this player. It's just that like you 
the, the decision to play from the big blind is one that, um, you know, in general, you're not excited to play out of possession. And the reason you call raises from the big blind is that you're getting a discount to do it for the most part. Um, I mean, if, if you have really strong hands, you want to re-raise, you don't want to call. Like the main reason you're calling is you're just sort of like, ah, I don't love playing out of position, but I'm getting a good price. So I guess I call. And the bigger the raise is, the less good the price is that you're, that you're getting, regardless of, of what his range might be. All right. Well, we talked about a hand. Well done, everybody. I think we had a, a riveting discussion. It's nice to have a, a fresh hand, a fresh live hand at that. Definitely, you know, I know people aren't playing as much because we're just not getting sent to any hands. We used to get sent hands all the time, and now no one sends us any hands. So, guys, <laughs> if you're listening to this, keep sending us hands. Uh, don't worry about your health. Go into the casino, play hands, and send them to us, and we'll talk about them. Uh, James, thank you for taking the lead on you know this this new phase of poker where you know you've got to assume some sort of public health risk to to play but i'm sure it's it's been well worth it yeah any last thoughts before we change topic oh thanks for thanks for the feedback yeah i thought i thought everyone made a lot of good points so thanks guys well andrew so i guess you've been forced into the underground games you know playing with you know mobsters and the like or uh bureaucrats or whomever how, how are those games going uh i have not been playing very much poker at all lately i mean so i i stopped going to live casinos even before i was uh legally prevented or you know, even before those casinos closed um just because it seemed like a bad idea as early as like february as far as i was concerned um to be going to those places especially I, i'm in the um the dc baltimore area which i mean i guess New York or Las Vegas are like this as well, but I think the more like cosmopolitan the area and the more international travelers that we were getting in like February, the uh, the greater the risk was in those areas. So anyway, I stopped playing live poker for a while. Um, I don't love the online poker options that are available in the um, in the at least the parts of the U.S. that are not uh, that, that don't have the like regulated U.S. sites. So I've not played a whole lot even of um, of online poker. What I have been doing in addition to like, um, I actually found my coaching business did not slow down very much. Um, if anything, it might even have increased between people, you know, having a little bit more time at home, maybe where they were, could you know, take advantage of coaching opportunities. And uh, you know, I work with quite a few people who either had not played online poker before period or had not in quite some time, uh, maybe since Black Friday. And so I had a lot of people who I was used to coaching in, in live poker who were coming to me and saying like, uh, I'm playing online now. How do I do that? Uh, so I, I had you know, a fair bit of coaching stuff to do. And then I had a book already in the works. Uh, so I, I published a book this time last year, May of, May of 2019, called Play Optimal Poker. And uh, I started on a sequel to that book almost immediately. So like once the WSOP was over, I started almost immediately on, on a sequel. Uh, so I had that already in the works. That was really what I've spent most of my my quarantine time on. And I published that uh, just about a month ago. So Play Optimal Poker 2 is uh, is out there now. Uh, congratulations on both of the books. Thanks. We haven't, we haven't had you on, you know, to talk about either. So maybe it would be good to 
know, I think the, the title gives away some of the content, but if you could maybe give us a preview into what people can find inside of those books, uh, and in particular, the new one, since I know a lot of listeners have read the first book. Sure, I'd love to. The, it, it is a book about, uh, I, I would say it, it's a book meant to um, help people who think that they don't need game theory understand game theory and why maybe they should be thinking in those terms. Um, I know a lot of people have the idea of, um, oh, you know, I just play in these like small stakes games where my opponents are bad and they're easy to exploit, so I don't need to worry about game theory or you know, I don't play with the same opponents very often. Um, I think those are essentially just misunderstandings about what game theory is and what it's useful for. Um, I'm fond of saying that uh, game theory is for anyone who is ever in a situation at the poker table where they're not, where they're not sure what the right play is. <laughs> Which is to say, um, if you... Anytime that you, like, as we talked about in this, uh, in, in this hand with James, right, there are many situations where, where we kind of said, well, you know, if we can make an assumption about what this player is going to do, we think he's going to fold too often, or we think he's going to be transparent with his C-betting, then we just kind of know what the right play is. Like, if, if we know this player only C-bets when he has it, then it's pretty easy to put together a strategy of, like, mostly fold with his C-bets, and then bluff if he doesn't. See about the flop, um, and that that strategy kind of like suggests itself, and maybe we don't really need game theory to figure out something like that. But even against that kind of player, we still might you know run into some situations where we don't know the right players, where we don't know how to exploit that player. And any time that there's not an obvious exploit, those are the kind of situations where game theory can be useful. Uh, so the the original book, Play Optimal Poker, is really meant to be a kind of uh, primer on, on game theory. It's meant to take you from zero to um, I don't really know what number <laughs> what number to put on it, but you know to the point where you understand what these concepts are and you have an intuitive sense of how to use them in game. It's not a book that's meant to um, tell you how to use a solver or what to do with a, a solver. It's more just to you know, help you understand the basic concepts underlying um, game theory, which are really the concepts under, underlying like the mathematics of poker generally. Like, what is it that makes poker profitable? Where does your profit come from? Um, what is a mistake? How do you take advantage of a mistake? Uh, all of those things, I think, are informed by game theory, which is not to say that like when you're playing, you should be uh, trying to like model what a solver would do. But I think you should be understanding why solvers do the things that they do so that you can decide in any given situation whether those apply to you or not. So the, the first book is, is kind of under, uh, introducing some basic concepts from game theory and talking about how they can be useful in, in any game, um, no matter the stakes, no matter the opponents. And uh, the, the second book is essentially expanding on that and getting into some of the more complicated and, and difficult decisions in, uh, in Hold'em, which are often the early street decisions like, like we talked about here. Um, river decisions, there's generally fewer factors that you need to consider. And early street decisions, you have to be thinking about not just stuff like pot odds and whether or not you think your opponent is bluffing, but also, um, again, as we talked about here, <laughs> right? how well is my hand going to play on, on future streets? And that's a really critical consideration and not at all easy to answer. I mean, we can answer it in in more or less specific terms. Um, but the more, I guess I would say that the purpose of the book is to give you heuristics for answering a question like that, um, to be able to answer with, with more precision a question like, how well will my hand play on future streets? And then you know, that helps you to make a decision about whether you should better check, call, raise, or fold. 
Something I remember um, from your first book, if you don't mind if I provide a little example of how our listeners might find it useful. Is that all right? Oh, I, I, that would be very welcome. Yeah. So I remember um, there's like the ace-king-queen game where you're playing against the polarized range, and then you expand upon that through like ace through eight. Is that correct if five. I remember? Sorry? Ace through five. Ace through five. And something that it kind of helped cement for me was on the river when you're facing aggression, you don't want to have the weakest hands in your range to rebuff. So like you won't want to have that five or um, like in, a, in like an actual game, you won't want to have like the bottom of your range to rebuff usually because your opponent, um, you want your opponent to retain those bluffs in their range because they should be like bluffing with all their weakest showdown hands. So yeah, we want to rebluff with something that has like a tiny bit of value such that our opponent wouldn't have used that to bluff so that our bluffs can be more profitable. And that could be like facing a bet like in position on the river or um, um, when we're check raising the river as a bluff. So yeah. You, you don't block yeah. Bluffs. Yeah, you don't want to block their bluffs because some of the the profit of your bluffs is going to come from when they're bluffing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It helped cement that for me. And um, there are a ton of other concepts like that that I think people will find quite useful in your book. Yeah, I think... So I've talked a lot about game theory on this show. And I, I would draw an analogy like this. In basketball, you know the most important things to determine your success are, you know, your sort of skills and your anticipation of your opponents. Or I guess if you think of a one-on-one -on -one game, you know, your, your anticipation of what your opponent's going to do. But I think that that's because the sort of underlying rule set, particularly like the laws of physics, we have a pretty good intuitive sense about Poker is very different in that I think it still comes down to like your ability to sort of execute and anticipate what your opponents will do, but you're still existing within like the laws of physics. But in poker, those are more mathematical laws just about how the deck is constructed and the rules of the game. And they're not intuitive in, this, in the same way that like physics is uh, for a human. And so and I don't mean the study of physics, I mean like the sort of practice of physics. Like I throw the ball and I, you know, my body after, uh, you know, many millions of generations of dealing with projectiles has a good sense of like where it's going to go. So I think to me, learning game theory is sort of like tuning up your poker physics where you still want, in my opinion, to be very laser focused on like your opponent and trying to sort of predict with the best accuracy you can what your opponent will do but you know this is all happening within a mathematical context where without an understanding of what that context is it's very hard to even know what to do even if you can predict your opponent yeah i, I think i agree with that the, the the way i tend to put that is that um in order to play and i i'm i'm a big fan of playing exploitatively like in case that didn't come across in this uh in this in this hand discussion like i think 
you you should very frequently be be playing exploitatively. But I think that in order to to maximize your exploits, you need to know what a fundamentally sound game would look like, so that you can recognize when your opponent is deviating from it. And there are some circumstances where you might not need game theory to help you with that. Like you might just be able to say, you know, so and so calls too often on the river, or so and so faults too often on the river. But even then. Um, there are some exploits that are more obvious and some that are less obvious as a result of that. Uh, so like what came up today in our, uh, in our hand discussion about whether or not to call preflop, if, if we have this exploit, or we, we know that the villain makes this particular mistake of um, he uses different bet sizings on the flop based on how strong his hand is. And we think that we're not sure, but like we think with a reasonable degree of certainty that we're going to be able to just make better decisions on the flop in, in general. Uh, you know, if he makes a small bet, we think we'll be able to check raise him profitably. If he makes a big bet, we'll be able to fold correctly. There, there's obvious exploits to that, which is like on the flop, if when he uses that small bet size, you raises the bluff, and when he uses the big bet size, you overfold. Those would be the obvious exploits. But there's also some less obvious exploits further down the game tree of, you know, you can call wider pre-flop if you can anticipate that he's going to make this mistake on the flop. Um, I also think there are some mistakes that are just harder to detect in general. Like, I think a lot of people probably don't have a strong sense of how often a player should be check-raising a particular flop or should be three-betting the flop after they get check-raised. And um, they're not even thinking of exploits around those things. So they're not thinking, how should it affect my C-betting strategy that this player will check-raise more, more or less often? How should it affect my check-raising strategy that this player will never three-bet a check-raise, which I think is true of quite a few people. You know, like it's very rare that they're going to three-bet versus they, if they're in position, strong hand, weak hand, whatever, they're just going to call or fold when they get check-raised and they almost never three-bet unless it's all in. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people have never even thought about how might I exploit something like that, or how might how might I recognize that my opponent is um, is doing something like that. So I found that in studying game theory, it's helped me to uh, be more a more effective exploitative player because it's opened my eyes to exploits I never would have thought of before, and it's given me the tools to to find some like less obvious or less intuitive exploits. Yeah, I think the thing I tend to resist is I think people have varying degrees of understanding or confidence around the ability to sort of start from solid ground. My personal feeling is that like people who think that they've sort of constructed like an approximation of what a GTS strategy would look like through the use of like their logic and solvers are somewhat mistaken in the time spent towards trying to establish like a baseline in that matter would be better spent trying to understand, you know, how our opponents think and what we should be looking for in terms of what our opponents will do. Uh, and that, you know, the sort of common thread between those is math. Like, you, you know, you have to sort of rely on the math of the game to do both well. But I actually think that because solvers can do the math for us, that people have a tendency to maybe focus more on trying to interpret and recreate the solver than they do in thinking deeply about the sort of mathematical fundamentals that may shape sort of a toy game that a solver represents as a way of just sharpening their math skills to then take into sort of like a more wholly human domain so and I, I think there's something very like 
satisfactory and tempting to people about the idea that there exists technology that can kind of give you the answer. And I just don't think that that's true. And the to the degree that it is true, it also remains untrue that I think you can actually approximate what that does uh, or that the approximation of what that does is likely to yield very, you know, very good results for you. I think all three of those assumptions are kind of sitting on shaky ground. And so it's, to me, like the value of learning game theory, which is immense, is really as like a, a sort of lens through which you can more finely grasp the kind of mathematical underpinnings that, uh, you know, a deck of 52 cards with these specific rules sort of implies. Yeah, I think I agree with that. The, the thing I would throw on top of it is um, it also opponents' incentives. Uh, in addition to a, a deck of cards and its its rules or its its physics, its mathematical rules, that there's often uh, the other like major um, variable being introduced is kind of like what your opponents' incentives are going to be in a in a given situation. And um, there's a psychology to that also of you know most if not all players are not robots who are playing purely to maximize their EV. You know, people have other incentives. They want to have fun. They want to look good at the table. They want to feel like a winner. They want to lower their barrier. Like there's all kinds of other things that, that motivate people. Um, but just knowing that like that is a, a component that's supposed to be stirred into things. The, the best advice I think I've gotten in terms of what to do with the solver that I think we can even generalize to like what to do with game theory in general is you know it's it's not like looking in the back of a textbook, and this is a mistake. I mean, when I first started working with a solver, that was like what I wanted to do with it. Was I played a hand, I wasn't sure what the right play was, and I was like, oh, let's look on the solver and see what the solver says is the right play. Um, and I think that's not really. Uh, I think this is consistent with the point you are making, but correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think that's not really the the point. It's, it's it's not about trying to look up the answer. It's about um, essentially running experiments, like try and you can do this with toy games, you can do it with solvers, um, you can do it with thought experiments, but just trying to answer questions like, how does board texture affect continuation betting strategy? How does board texture affect check raising strategy? How does continuation betting frequency affect check raising strategy? Um, how does, you know, all, all kinds of like, essentially what you want to do is like change a single variable and then see how the strategy changes. And that helps you to build up intuition so that you can uh, construct a strategy on the fly for any given situation that you find yourself in. Like suddenly you find yourself with a tough decision. I think, you know, a lot of people are just sort of, if they don't have a theoretical uh, underpinning for their game, they're just lost at sea when they face something that they haven't faced before, um, which happens, especially when you're playing against tougher opponents or unknown opponents. Um, you know, sometimes someone just, you know, they uses a bet size you've never seen, or they check raise you in a spot where you didn't think they were, you were going to get check raised or just all kind of weird stuff happens. And, uh, you know, you need to be prepared for that. It can't just be like, oh, well, I didn't know what this meant. So I didn't know what to do. Um, which if you just play a kind of purely exploitative game, that's what you're stuck with is, you know, you're, you're used to making assumptions about your opponents. And then anytime you're in a situation where you can't make assumptions about them, then you're just, you're, you're adrift, you're out to sea. Uh, and so I think, you know, understanding a little bit better the, the mathematical underpinnings of the game enables you to sort of determine, okay, I don't know what this means, but I know I, you know, should try not to fold too often. And I can sort of determine how much I should be raising versus calling and, and why and what make, what 
properties a good calling hand might have, what properties a good raising hand might have. Um, again, much of what we saw on display in our, uh, our hand history discussion today, like when we talked about whether or not to whether or not the king five suit would be a good candidate for check raising the turn, you know, we were thinking about things like, well, we have to compare it to the value of calling, right? It's not just enough to be plus EV, it has to be more plus EV than calling. Um, we have to think about how well is it going to play if it is called. Um, you know, are, are there reasons why we might want to check raise king five suited, but not with some other hand? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, game theory is useful for all of those kinds of discussions. Yeah, I agree. But I thought I'll, I'll add two things. One is, and I don't think either of these are disagreement. I do think that a lot of times when people say like, oh, I don't know, I have no assumptions here. I'm tempted to call bullshit. Yeah. Because I just think that people tend to sort of give up and stop thinking more so than they really don't. They can't make any kind of like educated prediction about what their opponent is doing. They've just lost the thread and they they're lost and they don't have the skills to sort of like recreate the hand in their head and think through like what their opponent is most likely to do. And so that's why that's sort of the main skill that I focus on uh, for myself and for students that I work with, even though certainly like math, I mean, math is obviously essential to that skill set. And also game theory can help give us a shortcut when we're in a pinch and it's that's just impractical for a number of reasons to try and recreate the hand like that we can kind of default to kind of game theory inspired uh methods of decision making things like considering what your own range maybe looks like uh, and trying to sort of make a sort of defensive frequency oriented decision but yeah i think that should be to me that is sort of akin to giving up or it's a backup plan it should it should never be plan a that's just my approach and yeah i I like what you said about solvers using them experimentally and i think whenever you can pull that off it's a good thing to do one thing that for me is like a simpler way of using solvers which i found to be effective is more or less as inspiration so i think that you know it's impossible not to kind of put human sort of types of reasoning and language behind what a solver does. But that obviously sort of on its face doesn't totally make sense. So my thought has been that a good way of using solvers is just look for plays solvers are making, which we understand have some sort of grounding in like a mathematical reality and just try and figure out your own sort of reasonings for why that might be or like what is it about this spot where king six is like a pure fold and king seven is raising a lot like what are details that you haven't been paying attention to that they have some sort of mathematical basis and what are the own sort of what what's your own reasoning for why this could make sense and i think the the way i describe that in the book is is like trying to derive heuristics from looking so like the, the second book does look at um at, at solver outputs more so than the first book does but it's always with an eye you know it, it, it's never 
here's how to replicate what the solver is doing. It's more like, um, here's how to derive heuristics from what the solver is doing. You know, here, here's why the solver has a higher check raise frequency in this spot than in that spot. Here's why it's choosing these kinds of hands to check raise with more so than, than that kind of hand, et cetera. Yeah, I think discovering heuristics is a good way of putting it. And another way of thinking about it is just like discovering details. Because the, the thing that the solver is really, really excellent at in the context of like these toy games that we present the solver is capturing all the details from a sort of mathematical perspective. And it's not something that we can replicate, but what we can do is try and figure out at least where maybe some of our blind spots exist uh, in terms of like what? the, the yeah. importance of specific cards or how maybe like a, a different turn card sort of shifts advantage such that the types of lines we should expect to see at high frequency change all these sorts of things one kind of example that is maybe one of those like detail type things that you were speaking about jack is i was looking recently at like some different opening charts for like under the gun six max or whatever so low jack and it's folding a lot of or it prefers like seven six suited to open to nine eight suited and then interrogating that a little bit it's maybe difficult to say exactly why but part of the reason is like on some of these like jack 10 high boards yeah nine eight suited is is going to be yeah garbage against the hands our opponents are calling with or so that's that's the kind of detail that's like not initially intuitive, but um, you can kind of look for those kinds of things in your um, in your solves and um, start to learn a lot more about the game. You know, it's interesting that that you bring up that example because I think, in a way, at least for me, it is intuitive that nine eight is bad, uh, or at least it's not as good as a hand like seven six in a lot of settings. But I think you could, we can end up sort of adopting simpler heuristics like, you know, higher cards are better, which is a good heuristic. But yeah, I think the solver can help you think about details like, you know, potentially in like a bluff catching scenario where blockers are more important than kickers, you know, potentially. And yeah, or just even raw hand strength in general. Like, you know, it's, I'm sure you see this a lot too, where someone's facing a big bet, you know, a flush card comes on the river and, you know, the opponent shoves and then, you know, people call because they have a set. And it's just like, it's uh, once your opponent's range is polarized around your hand, like the, the strength of your hand should not be the determining factor of whether or not you call. Like, I mean, if, if you have a blocker, you probably have a plus EV call. If you don't have a blocker, you are going to have like either a neutral or a negative EV. Um, and it's not going to be based on it's not going to be just it's it's not going to it's not going to be based on the uh, the rank of your or I guess the rank of your kicker as as you were saying it's just going to be either an assumption about your opponent's bluffing frequency uh, and or the the whether or not you block a flush or have a flush obviously one thing that you know I think both highlights the importance of game theory and also. The fact that I think maybe it is overrated uh, as like a pure sort of strategic option by a lot of the poker community is think about a game like rock, paper, scissors, where, you know, obviously if you employ like the GTO strategy in rock, paper, scissors, you guarantee yourself a wash 
And to me, there's, there's reasons to think that it can be like that in poker too. Not that it's, you know, if someone played like a truly GTO strategy, they wouldn't like make money. But I don't think there we have like a huge amount of reason to believe that um, playing purely GTO like prints money. To me, that we just don't have the evidence to actually make that assertion. But obviously, you know, understanding that. But but who makes that assertion? Like, there's a, this is a conversation I've had with Berkey a lot. Also, that just feels like a a, a straw man to me. I, I don't know of anyone who makes the assertion that like that playing purely GTO is a a, a desirable thing, or or that it. Well, you could look at like what's the DTO thing, uh, like GTO trainers. Right, I mean, that's a that's a tool for for using game theory to train. I don't know that that he would advocate um, that you should just like always try to play a GTO strategy in any situation. No, but I I do think so. Here's where I think the sort of root of the problem is. You know, we have this sort of like high stakes circuit where I think there can be an incentive to if you can get backing and you don't feel confident in your like real edge against sort of elite competition i think what you can what you can have is you sort of like gravitate towards everybody sort of just converges to like a very sort of gto oriented strategy where you're sort of profiting from the very small amount of fish who are in those fields and also just from like markup and i think that kind of gets held as like a gold standard where it's actually very kind of like oriented around the situation that like you can make a living by like charging a markup and having like a few very weak players in these pools, especially like with maybe other sort of opportunities for monetizing your image that come from being in those fields. And because that's sort of like the gold standard of like, these are the best players um, because they're playing in the biggest events. I think that that maybe has like a trickle down effect where people are sort of, they think that that's the best way to play. Maybe I'm just totally wrong uh, in that assertion, but that just, that's been my impression. And so I do think that among pros and like the very, very like sharp and knowledgeable players, there is a, it's not misunderstood that GTO, it's understood that GTO isn't, just like sort of a panacea that prints money. Um, but I think that it can be represented in that way to a broader audience that like has a lot of people who sort of follow that fairly stringent. I mean, is, is that a representation that someone's making or is that just a misunderstanding? Like, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that people see people, like some pe- people have like incentives essentially to play in these like super tough games because of markup and image and, and whatever else. And in those games, it makes sense for them to try to uh, approximate a GTO strategy much more than you would try to do in like a 2-5 game or something. Um, but what I thought you were saying was that then, you know, there are people who kind of like look up to them or see what they're doing and think, oh, I should be doing that too. Um, but then when you say that they're representing it, like that makes it sound like they're actually, that the people in those games are like advocating you should be doing this in a in a 5-10 game or something. And the, the latter is what I have not seen. I think the the upswing school of thought was a lot more oriented towards balance and trying to approximate a GTO strategy 
And I think that had a lot of influence on people who have done like a small amount of poker training. So yeah, I think, I think they were advocating for a long time for just trying to keep a kind of balanced strategy, which is not the same as like a GTO strategy, but is, yeah, it's not very like exploitative. Yeah, I, I agree that that's not like the mainstream presentation. We don't have like a poker mainstream where like, people are saying you should play exactly how this hobby plays. For sure, that's not the case. I do think there is a community that kind of either explicitly you know, takes that approach or does something very similar. But I do think the mainstream has shifted towards your success at poker is very, very highly correlated to the degree to which you can approximate GTO if you wanted to. And I think that that's also like, I, well, I think that's a mistake. So, and I'm not, I'm not, I also am happy that, you know, people are doing that, but I, I would advocate to people who are trying to sort of make as much money from the game as you can to not treat that as like a goal or a prerequisite. And also understand that that has nothing to do with Andrew's book, because I, I do think that those skills will help you. It's just that the correlation to like your success as a poker player between like how accurately could you chart out what a solver is going to do that has like sort of quickly diminishing returns relative to just having a sense of that and having a very strong sense of just what is the math of the game. Yeah, I think diminishing returns is, is a very good way of putting that. Uh, and and the way I I even um, you say this explicitly in, in in the second of the books, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, the, the Pareto principle, right? the idea that uh, you get 80% of the value from 20% of the effort. I do think there's a lot of people who would benefit from putting in that 20% of effort to get that 80% of value of just kind of under, understanding like the the very like most fundamental concepts from game theory, right? Which I would distinguish from. I mean, there's there's a lot of problems with the way the poker community generally uses this this terminology. Um, I think often when people say GTO, they mean a specific strategy of like trying to imitate what a solver is doing. Um, game theory, I would say, is just a set of tools for analyzing a situation. And yeah. you know, the strategy that you end up employing after. Um, using that set of tools is still up to you, right? I mean, so you can you can say, uh, here's what the GTO strategy would be, um, but I also know that my opponent is going to make such and such mistake, and my knowledge of game theory tells me that the best way to exploit that kind of mistake is to change my strategy in, in you know, this kind of way. And um, in that case, you know, I would say that you are using game theory but not playing GTO. It's interesting you bring up Berkey. So I do think... You know, in, in a lot of senses, I think it's it's interesting what has happened to Software Y, who I adore, but I'm also like not affiliated with any longer. And I think they have a great they have such a great product that I feel comfortable saying that I think that they have gone too far down the GTO route. And I think it's it's sort of a natural commercial incentive um, if you're building a platform because people want answers. And so I think that's, it, it becomes very tempting for the poker sort of education community, myself included, to sort of provide something that is more concrete. And so I think that that incentive has driven a lot of the conversation 
and, and sort of the, the change in the sort of broad poker approach to strategy. And there's there's been a lot of positive benefits to that, but now I think that the opportunity in the game is to be able to internalize that quickly using you know, sort of like, I would say probably a book is your best bet, a book like Andrew's. Use that to sort of get that 20% and then focus on the areas that are maybe being neglected relative to what was maybe being focused on more sort of in a pre-poker education dominated poker environment. I don't know if that feels accurate to you at all. Oh, I mean, I've, I've, it's been a couple of years since I've uh, been to any self for Y event. So I, I mean, it, it's not a criticism I've heard from of them before that they're like uh, overly game theory focused. I feel like usually the, the critique of them is the opposite, but I have no, uh, I have no firsthand knowledge of that. Oh no, not, not even speaking about them uh, in particular, since I still think they have like among the better balances of game theory and sort of more exploitative oriented training. Uh, that's, that's what's out there. But I think that, you know, prior to that, part of what made them, you know, unique and extremely attractive to me was maybe like a greater willingness to live sort of in the world of uncertainty, which is not necessarily something that people are always looking for from training. They're looking for something that's more certain. And like, if I do this, I will get good at poker. Uh, there's a strong incentive as a poker educator to be able to provide that kind of thing. Or, or just the certainty of like, I definitely, like, I, I think that that's true. I mean, and this really was, was the basis of my like getting interested in, in game theory in the first place was, was a search for some kind of like firm footing, because I do get the sense as, as a coach, and I imagine you've gotten this as well, that like a fair amount of the time when people bring like a specific hand to you, which I try not to build my coach too much around this um, in order to avoid this problem. They're like, it's not really necessarily that it was like an especially tough or important decision as much as just like it's a decision that's been bothering them and they just want an answer like did I or didn't I not play this correctly and I mean sometimes you're more confident giving them a like definitive answer on that than others but um there's so much that we do in poker to try to answer you know we're like you and you see this stuff all the time people like beg to know like what did you have did you have it there did you have it, Can it, you have it? And there's you you can't ever get a certain answer, right? Because you're because you're playing against a range. You even if the person shows you his cards and say, "Oh yeah, I had it, good fold," like it doesn't actually mean it was a good fold. And even if the person told you what his range would be in that situation, like he might be lying, he might not be really aware of what his own range would be. Like you don't get to have that kind of uncertainty. Um, and I think that's like kind of the appeal of understanding game. I mean, ultimately, like that's what poker and game theory are about is like making decisions under conditions of uncertainty right? where we we are not sure what the opponent is going to do we're not sure what the opponent holds we're not sure what the turn or the river card are going to be and then the question is like how do we make um the most profitable decisions given the information we do have which you know like we talked about way back when is sort of you know well we know we know what cards are in a deck and what frequency they're going to come out and we know what our opponent's incentives are and we know what information the opponent uh has seen from us like we, we know what actions we've taken and what information he you know will presumably try to derive from that and then you know th those are like the uh pieces with which we build our strategy game theory gives you certainty into exactly how uncertain you are. <laughs> right. Well, we could talk about this more 
we could write books about this more. I think one of us will. I think the rest <laughs> of us probably won't. And I think that's probably for the best. Andrew, we really, really appreciate your time. I know we said it before, or at least I said it before, but your guys' show was a huge inspiration for us starting Just Hands, or you know, Zach and I starting Just Hands. And yeah, it's it feels strange that we've been at it for four years, and even stranger that you guys have been at it for eight years. Fingers crossed that you guys get to the decade mark and beyond, uh, since I think that you guys are still putting out you know, really fantastic product, uh, both I think in poker and the adjacent thinking poker world, an assortment of other things that you guys offer. I don't know yeah. if there's anything uh, else you, oh, go ahead, James. Oh, um, Andrew, where's the best place for people to pick up your books? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so if you want a paper book, the answer is simple. Uh, Amazon is the only place to get a paperback version of the book. Um, ebook is available either uh, on, and this is, this is true for both books, for both the first and the second book. And um, you should read the first book first, uh, unless you already have like a very deep understanding of, of game theory that you might be able to skip the first book. I probably still wouldn't recommend it. Um, also, the first book is uh, currently 67% off. So it's a good time to, to pick it up. So the first book, or both books, available in paper, only at Amazon. Um, for an ebook, you can either get that from Amazon or you can get it directly from me at the Thinking Poker store, which is www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, the advantage of doing that soon, if you were to get it from Nitcast, is that we're going to be donating um, all of our June proceeds from the store to a charitable organization called Give Directly, which uh, gives money directly to people living in poverty. Uh, so 100% of the money that you spend in the store, even like the fees that we pay to the store, we're going to be paying those out of pocket and uh, contributing 100% of the money that, that comes in through the Nickcast store in June to Give Directly. So um, your money will, uh, in fact, go towards people, um, go to people living in poverty, and you will get the book or anything else you choose to pick up from the Nickcast store. And those links will be in the, the show notes as well. So you can go there right now and go buy the books. Okay. <laughs> Game theory knowledge and giving to charity. I, I think hopefully uh, not everyone has bought the book already and we can get you some more sales, uh, get the little just hands bump that I'm sure our listeners will follow through on. Thanks again, Andrew. Uh, and thank you, James. And we'll see you guys all next week. <laughs>